are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. for today is from Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Good morning church. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you happen to be today. As Tyler said, the sermon today is simply entitled Friday, because today we're going to be reflecting on the suffering and death of Jesus, as we just heard described by the prophet Isaiah. The day when we remember the death of Jesus is usually referred to as Good Friday. And as we talk today about what that entailed for Jesus, it wouldn't be surprising if you started wondering what's so good about it. Some say that it originates from God's Friday or Gott's Freitag in German, or that the good is more in reference to a day that is holy. Indeed, in some languages like French, it is referred to as Holy Friday. It's referred to as Long Friday in Scandinavian languages, and in German is often referred to as Karfreitag or Sorrowful Friday. Whatever we happen to call that day, it's good because it is the day that makes our forgiveness possible. Now, you might all be thinking, isn't it a little premature to be talking about the crucifixion already? Can't we just like talk about something lighter and save the death talk for a quick recap on Good Friday so that we can save our energy for the fun and hopeful part that is Easter Sunday morning? But Easter Sunday means nothing without Good Friday. The full gospel of Jesus Christ requires both. When I was growing up, it really was all about Easter Sunday, and I loved Easter Sunday morning. We would literally have a brass band parade early in the morning through the streets of our neighborhood announcing the good news that he is risen. And it wasn't until I was in my early 20s when I actually attended a much more somber Good Friday service at an Anglican church in Dublin, and I realized how much more meaningful Easter Sunday became after I'd spent time meditating at the cross on Good Friday. The truth is that at any given time, even in the church, we would much rather avoid talking about death or anything painful. In fact, we're inclined to gloss over, to rush past. Our whole culture and way of life avoids any reference to aging or death or dying. The first time I ever attended an Ash Wednesday service was in this room. And I still remember well how jarring it was to say these words alongside everybody else. I will lose my youth, I will lose my health, I will lose my loved ones, everything that I hold dear, and finally, life itself. This is the nature of being human. Talking about the death of Jesus reminds us of our own mortality, and any conversation around death and mortality usually makes us feel pretty uncomfortable. And yet I feel like there is so much that God would want to speak to us today through reflecting on the passion of Jesus. 
So we're going to very intentionally linger there. And first and foremost, we're going to do that because Scripture does. If you've ever read through the Gospels, you'll have noticed that the biblical narrative slows way down when we get to the events of Holy Week. In fact, one early Christian commentator suggested that the Gospels are really all about the final week of Jesus' life with varying lengths of introduction. In Mark's Gospel, the first 10 chapters reference the three years of the public ministry of Jesus, while the remaining six chapters detail his last week, much of which is preoccupied by what is known as the passion of Jesus. The word passion comes from the Latin word for suffering. And for Mark, who most likely wrote this gospel under the direction of Peter, the suffering and death of Jesus was the most important thing. As we journey with Jesus in his passion, we will carry with us our own passions, our own personal experiences of pain and suffering and death. We'll accompany Jesus into the very mystery of human suffering and I wonder how this might speak to us about where Jesus is in the midst of the global crisis that we currently find ourselves in. To summarize the last week of Jesus's life, we have his triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the crowds cheering Hosanna, which we remember on Palm Sunday, which is next Sunday. And that marks the beginning of his final week. We then read of his last supper with his disciples, where as he breaks the bread and shares the cup, he explains that this is his body that will be broken and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We see the agony of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he cries out to God, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. This cup that symbolized all that Jesus would have to suffer He's anticipating the physical pain of his torture and execution, the emotional pain of losing the world that he has known and loved, not to mention the spiritual agony of separation from his father. And yet in the midst of all of this reality, we see such courageous surrender, yet not what I will, but what you will. We then read of his betrayal by Judas, one of his 12, which leads to his arrest, at which point all of his disciples desert him in fear. He's then brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, to be accused, to be mocked and beaten. And then, as he predicted, one of his best friends, Peter, the one who claimed, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you, denies and disowns Jesus three times to save his own skin. What a week! And of course, we're just getting started because now we've arrived at Friday, the day that God died. In Mark's gospel account, Friday is divided up into three four-hour segments, dawn to 9 a.m., 9 a.m. to noon, noon until 3, and 3 until evening. And so today I want to spend some time going chronologically through the events and the details of that day and alongside to share some thoughts on what I believe God wants to draw our attention to in this very familiar narrative. And I'm going to hone in on four words specifically that I believe are the invitations to us as a community as we practice the way of Jesus, even in his suffering. Friday begins with Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor, having been handed over to him by the Jewish leaders because their own laws prevented them from executing him. 
Pilate offers to release Jesus or a prisoner called Barabbas, who was a known murderer, and the crowds call for the release of Barabbas instead. So Pilate releases Barabbas and has Jesus flogged and sentences him to death by crucifixion. He is then handed over to the Roman soldiers who humiliate him with mock worship. They put a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns on his head. They spit at him and then they flog him. And this would have been done with a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with small balls of lead or sheep bone attached near the ends of each. And the heavy whip was brought down with full force again and again across the shoulders, back and legs. Eventually, the entire area becomes an unrecognizable mass of torn and bleeding tissue. Jesus is then forced to carry the horizontal crossbeam through the streets of Jerusalem. The uprights for the crosses were usually in place permanently outside the city gates and the criminal would carry the horizontal post along with the notice of their crime. In the case of Jesus, it said, the king of the Jews. Having been beaten and flogged mercilessly, Jesus was already so weak that he couldn't carry the horizontal post and the Roman soldiers forced a man from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross for him, not remotely out of kindness or compassion, but simply because they needed to get the job done. And the word that comes to mind for me as I reflect on Jesus and his suffering is courage. Courage is the ability to do something that frightens us. It's having strength in the face of pain and grief. When I think of his astounding humility, his obedience, how Jesus endured suffering, how he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, I see overwhelming courage. When my sister-in-law Louise was diagnosed with cancer for the second time, she had a giant inoperable tumor in her abdomen. And so quickly, the doctors wanted to begin aggressive treatment to try and shrink the tumor. And shortly after finding out the news, I traveled home to be with them. And I wanted to put together a little care package for her of just things that I thought she would appreciate as she went through chemo. And one of the things that I got for her was a necklace um, by a company called The Giving Keys in LA. And I was able to choose a word that I wanted to be engraved on the key. And it was really challenging for me to think of the most appropriate word to choose. I wondered if it should be hope or faith or peace. But the one I landed on was courage. And at the time, I thought I was choosing a word to simply carry her through her treatment it turned out to also be the word that she would need most as she would journey towards her death. Facing pain and suffering of any kind requires enormous courage. Right now, our world is journeying with pain, confusion, uncertainty, and many are suffering physically, emotionally, financially. We must have courage. And that doesn't necessarily mean living entirely without fear. You can be sure that when Jesus said, take this cup from me, he was afraid of all that would come. What does courage look like in your life right now? Brene Brown has this perspective. Courage is a heart word. The root of the word courage is core, the Latin word for heart. In one of its earliest forms, the word courage meant to speak one's mind by telling all of one's heart. 
Over time, this definition has changed, and today we typically associate courage with heroic and brave deeds. But in my opinion, this definition fails to recognize the inner strength and level of commitment required for us to actually speak honestly and openly about who we are and about our experiences, good and bad. Speaking from our hearts is what I think of as ordinary courage. What would it look like for you in your current situation to live each day with ordinary courage? To be honest and open in your conversation with Jesus and others, being brave enough to let yourself feel angry or scared or disappointed in his presence, to courageously invite his wounds to speak to yours. Recently, my four-year-old asked me, Mommy, is it more important to be led by your heart or by your head? And of course, I tried to explain that we need both. And yet I think in this season, God is inviting us to lean into being a people of heart. In John 16, there are some beautiful verses where Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for the pain and grief that they are about to experience. And he says to them, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What does it mean for us to take heart? I think the key words in this verse are in me, because in our own strength, we can't continually experience peace, hope, courage, but in Christ, we may. In Psalm 73, it says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In his humanity, Jesus is a model for us in the way of courage, in the way of the heart. How might he be inviting you today to take heart? In Mark's gospel, as we move into the next time period, he simply writes, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And he doesn't give any more details. He didn't need to say any more because the readers would have been very familiar with the Roman practice of crucifixion. But without the details, we can all too easily gloss over what Jesus actually endured. Crucifixion was reserved for very specific cases. It was for rebels and terrorists against the Roman imperial authority. And so crucifixion was a form of imperial terrorism. It was intentionally very public. Victims were hung up as a public warning against insurrection. So Jesus is led to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And we know that it would have been outside the city because Jewish law didn't permit executions or burials inside the city. It was most likely on a hill at a busy thoroughfare, probably busier than usual given that so many people were coming for the Passover. And it's here that Jesus is crucified Historical Roman accounts have established that the nails were driven between the small bones of the wrists, not through the palms. The left foot was pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail was driven through the arch of each. This was what crucifixion looked like. On top of the physical torture, we read of the utter humiliation that Jesus experienced as he was mocked and insulted by the Jewish leaders and the passers-by. And I think so much of what they say must have brought Jesus back to where his ministry really all began, to his time of temptation in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. These were some of the taunts of Satan during the temptations of Jesus in the desert. 
Doesn't that sound all very similar to, if you are the Son of God, come down off the cross? If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. If you are, if you are, if you are. All of it attempting to drown out the affirming voice of the Father. You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I think it's so important for us to realize that Jesus prepared for his public humiliation in his own private wilderness experience. Even there, right at the very beginning, he was practicing his death, a daily dying to self. Eugene Peterson wrote, in the three great refusals, Jesus refuses to do good things in the wrong way. Jesus died to his own will long before his death on the cross. His first death is what enabled him to endure the second. There's a powerful quote from Helene Sixu, which I think is very true of the posture of Jesus. But for me, death is past. It has already taken place, my own. It was at the beginning. Of course, death has also a future for me, but I'm not expecting death. I'm expecting to cross it, to spend it. And this brings me to the second word that I want to talk about. Jesus modeled for us the way of surrender, a surrender so complete that he could endure the indignity, the shame, the utter humiliation of creator God being destroyed by his creation, all for the sake of love. Following in the way of Jesus is really a daily practice of dying. It's a practice of surrender. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I die every day. When I was um, journeying with the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, one of the graces we prayed for was the desire for holy indifference. Ignatius said, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, a long life or a short one. Our only desire and one choice should be this. I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. Most of us are currently in a time of pretty extreme isolation and many of our attachments are being stripped away. And I think for some of us, we're probably coming face to face with those disordered attachments, the things in our life that may have too strong a hold on us. And perhaps all of our daily deaths, dying to self, dying to ego, dying to our attachments, are an invitation for us to move towards greater surrender and holy indifference. I wonder what surrender looks like for you today. By noon, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours, and the next three hours are described in one verse. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Nature itself is reflecting the agony of his passion. In the writings of the prophets, darkness is often connected to judgment and mourning. Amos 8 says this, in that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make that time like morning for an only sun. Jesus, light of the world, is plunged into utter darkness. In Galatians 3, Paul says that the sun became a curse for us. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That sin upon the sinless Son of God 
caused inconceivable separation. Tim Keller writes that just as the intimacy and joy that Jesus experienced in communion with the Father surpasses anything we can imagine, so his separation, rejection, and suffering on the cross surpasses any degree of pain that we can experience in this life. Jesus becomes separated from God, from perfect love, from life itself. He sacrifices it for the sake of love for his people. As our teaching text said earlier, He took our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus entered into solidarity with us. And that's the third word that I want us to focus on. Solidarity is about unity of feeling or action. Jesus entered into our story, our pain, our sin. As he hung on the cross, he felt the full force of pain, the gravity of grief, the entire weight of the world's sorrow. And that makes him our man of sorrows. He suffered because we suffer. So when we talk about God knowing our suffering, it's not just in a kind of, well, he's omniscient, so he knows everything kind of way. He knows because he has experienced it. He became our substitute. It's about solidarity. Eugene Peterson wrote, Jesus is the way we come to God. Jesus is the way God comes to us. There is nothing like the cross in the history of religion. The God revealed in the cross is completely unique because out of his immeasurable love and mercy, he didn't just empathize with us from a distance. He entered into the story. As Tyler said last week, he recovered the plot. He took all the pain, all the sin, all the brokenness of the world as his own. We cannot fathom what it must have been like for a perfect sinless Jesus to become sin. And he utterly absorbed it. And in doing so, he conquered sin and death and darkness once and for all. Philip Yancey writes that when Jesus prayed to the one who could save him from death, he did not get that salvation. He got instead the salvation of the world. And because Jesus entered into solidarity with us, we can invite him to journey with us in our own personal suffering. Scripture talks about us sharing in the suffering of Jesus. There is a mysterious fellowship with Jesus that can be found in the place of suffering. After Louise died, I felt most at home and most at ease in the company of people who had also experienced pain and loss. Why? Well, solidarity Pain and loss is unique and very personal, but there is a comfort in being with those who have a shared experience. And in the same way that we can feel a sense of communion with someone who has endured something similar to what we've experienced, we can all, regardless of what our personal version of loss and grief looks like, can experience communion with the one who has felt it all. Good Friday is much more than reliving the passion of Jesus. It is entering into solidarity with the passion of all people of our planet, whether in the past, the present, or the future. In Jesus, all human suffering is collected. The broken heart of Jesus is the broken heart of God. The broken heart of God is the broken heart of the world. Behold, behold, the wood of the cross on which is hung our salvation. O come, let us adore. 
What does it look like for us to invite Jesus as the man of sorrows to be with us in our suffering? And what does it look like for us to enter into solidarity with the hurting around us? What invisible crosses are people around you shouldering and how can you help to carry those? Even in this past week, I've heard about people in our community writing letters to inmates in prison who are no longer allowed to have visitors, of those delivering food to elderly or vulnerable neighbors, of the artists in our community finding ways to share messages of hope. Many of you have been taking time to simply, simply listen to each other, sending words of encouragement and blessing. These are simple acts of solidarity. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, like we all do at times, felt forsaken and asked why. Here Jesus is actually quoting the first verse of Psalm 22, which speaks so much of pain. If you read the whole Psalm, you'll notice a number of prophetic references to the crucifixion. We read, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. I'm poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. But what's beautiful about this particular psalm that Jesus is quoting is that it actually ends in victory. The first half is filled with suffering and hostility, and the second half is really a prayer of thanksgiving for deliverance. And as such, it is a fitting psalm for the crucifixion because the cross is about pain and it's also about deliverance. In Mark 10, 45, it says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom here is the Greek word litron, which speaks of the price paid for freedom and deliverance from bondage. Jesus gave himself willingly as a sacrifice because he knew that freedom and new life would be available to us on the other side of it. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. And so sometime shortly after three in the afternoon, Jesus dies. Creator God, Messiah, light of the world is gone. How can we who know how the story ends with Jesus rising from the dead on the third day really begin to recapture how the followers of Jesus must have felt in those moments? The unthinkable has actually happened. The worst case scenario is the new present reality. Those who love Jesus are thrust into the same darkness that had covered the land, a darkness that speaks of emptiness, of futility, of utter disbelief, a darkness that speaks of the loss of everything familiar, of the disorientation that you are ambushed by when you're faced with the shocking finality of death, when the very ground beneath you suddenly becomes paper thin. It's both a beautiful privilege and an agonizing battle to watch someone you love die. Nothing can prepare you for those moments when you watch life slip from the one that you love. When my sister-in-law Louise died, I remember feeling that everything about it was wrong, that this was not how things were supposed to be. And the thing that I wrestled with most was watching something irreversible happen right before my eyes and being absolutely powerless to stop it. 
Those who loved Jesus stood there reeling, trying to take in with utter disbelief the reality that he was actually gone, and with him their hopes and dreams faded too. Death draws a line in the sand like nothing else, creating a very distinct before and after. In the months following Louise's death, I felt like a total stranger to myself. Death also does something irreversible in those who are left behind. We're told that when Prince Albert died in 1861, Queen Victoria wore black every day for the rest of her 40 years of life. Traditionally in Ireland, when a loved one died, the clocks were stopped, mirrors were covered, curtains were closed. What happened in the moment when Jesus died? Scripture tells us that the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Rather than closing or covering or shutting off or shutting down, on the contrary, the death of Jesus broke something open, releasing something beautiful, a way for people to be reconciled to God. The sacrifice of Jesus was a sufficient atonement for all sin for all time. Now the presence of God would no longer be contained in a room available only to the elite, but would be available to all believers through the Holy Spirit. And yet, as John says in the beginning of his gospel, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. There's this beautiful moment when the Roman centurion who was standing in front of Jesus, guarding him and watching him as he was crucified, exclaimed, surely this man was the son of God. In beholding all that has just happened, he comes to the startling realization that he has just watched the God of the universe die. Mark's gospel tells us that the women who followed Jesus, the ones who already believed him to be the son of God, also stood by the cross watching all of this unfold. And the fact that the writer mentions the presence of the women implies the absence of the men. The disciples had fled, the women stayed. And as I've reflected on the gospel narratives, this is one of the parts that always moves me the most. Here are these brave women standing watching their friend die an agonizing death over the course of six hours. And I imagine in the midst of the mockery and accusation that the loyal and prayerful presence of these women was probably the only source of comfort to Jesus in his suffering. And this brings me to the final word that I want to talk about, and it's presence. If you've ever spent time in the company of someone who is suffering, you'll know that we don't do any great big things. Our goal is not productivity or efficiency, we simply need to be present. Being with the dying schools us in the art of presence. It's an invitation to be slow, to be quiet, to be still, to be with. There's no rushing because nobody wants what's on the other side of those moments together. There's just compassionate presence. There's something beautiful about the power of love and friendship in the midst of incredible pain and suffering, not necessarily able to change or fix the circumstances, but simply being present. I also want to draw attention to the way that Jesus modeled presence even on the cross. When they offered him wine mixed with gall that was used as an anesthetic, Jesus refused it. He wanted to remain fully present. Jesus felt every moment of his suffering. I wonder what you do with your pain. How is it shaping and forming you? How might your suffering produce perseverance and perseverance character and character hope, a hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts? 
So Jesus was present to his own suffering. But not only that, even in the midst of his pain, he allowed himself to be present to others. In the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, we read of Jesus extending forgiveness to the very people who inflicted the pain upon him. We read of him showing compassion to one of the men being crucified next to him. We see how he took the time to entrust the ongoing care of his mother to his best friend. In the midst of your own struggles, your own pain or confusion or anxiety, what might it look like for you to become present to the needs of others around you? Jesus was even present to the one he felt forsaken by. In Luke's gospel, the last words of Jesus are recorded to be, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Here Jesus is quoting Psalm 31, and it's a psalm that speaks of God as our refuge and shelter, our strong fortress that saves us. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Finally, we're told that a rich man called Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret follower of Jesus, asks Pilate for the body. And it would have been radically uncustomary for a crucified body to be given an honorable burial. In John's gospel, we read that Nicodemus, another secret friend of Jesus, brought 75 pounds in weight worth of spices and aloes, representing a colossal amount of money. These two rich men wrapped the body of Jesus in these spices with strips of linen and laid him in a new tomb cut out of the rock, giving him a burial fit for a king. Even in his death, they were present to him with the gifts that they had at their disposal, demonstrating the value they had for this man that was not at all lessened by the reproach of the cross. What gifts and resources do you have that might demonstrate the value you have for the people in your life? And how can you share those with them in such a way that gives dignity to those who are suffering? I want to say that for the most part, we live in a world that exists between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And we'll talk more about that next week when Tyler talks about Holy Saturday. We're people of the in-between who live in the reality of the now and the not yet, most of us find ourselves dwelling somewhere in between suffering and healing, somewhere in between despair and hope, somewhere in between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. But I believe the invitation today is to live in this place of in-between with courage, in surrender, in solidarity, and with presence. These four words are always important. But they're four words that have the utmost importance right now. These are the words that will make the difference in how we live during this time so that we can be a people who wait with hope, who wait with promise, who wait together, who wait with God's word. They will be what makes the difference in how we choose to posture ourselves as those who are still practicing the way of Jesus, even in the way of suffering. I want to close with this beautiful prayer by Henry Nouwen that says all I want to say so much better than I ever could. Jesus, your heart is broken. The heart that did not know hatred, revenge, resentment, jealousy, or envy, but only love, love so deep and so wide that it embraces your Father in heaven as well as all humanity in time and space. Your broken heart is the source of my salvation, the foundation of my hope, the cause of my love. It is the sacred place where all that was, is, and ever shall be is held in unity. There all suffering has been suffered, all anguish lived, all loneliness endured, all abandonment felt, and all agony cried out. 
Their human and divine love have kissed and their God and all men and women of history are reconciled. All the tears of the human race have been cried there, all pain understood and all despair touched. Together with all people of all times, I look up to you whom they have pierced and I gradually come to know what it means to be part of your body and your blood, what it means to be human. Lord, would you teach us Would you teach us what it means to be your body and your blood? In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, um, Tyler's going to come and send us out with a benediction. But before he does that, I just want to share for a moment about what's going to happen now right after the live stream. So as we did last week, community groups are going to be gathering right after this on Zoom video call. And so um, if that's you, I want to give us just some prompts to help guide that time together. So as a group, maybe you could reflect on and discuss which part of the Friday story or which of those four words, courage, surrender, solidarity, presence, resonated most with you this morning? And what do you think God's invitation is to you in this season as you practice the way of Jesus? And then I would love you just to take time to pray for each other, pray for specific needs that you have at this time, pray for the grace to live in response to whatever God is inviting you to, and then take some time to pray for our city and our world.